following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The scripture says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The way of the fool seems right to him, whereas the wise man listens to advice. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, whereas the mouth of the fool gushes folly. I would presume that everyone here tonight has at least something in your past for which you felt foolish about and would blush with shame to remember or discuss that event. If you're like me, you spend a fair amount of energy trying to avoid saying or doing foolish things. Most of us do not like to be embarrassed. But what do we make of somebody who does something extremely foolish on purpose? Well, in the eyes of the world, the most foolish act in history is what God did in the person of his own son. The cross of Christ is folly to men, and yet it is also the very wisdom of God. Please follow as we consider Paul's message from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles." But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we marvel at the folly of the cross, the very wisdom of God that perplexes the mind of people. We ask, O Lord, that you might give us a heart of wisdom as we consider this great mystery, as we gaze upon the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. History is riddled with foolish acts that lack judgment. British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain foolishly sought to pacify Adolf Hitler rather than confront him. And many historians credit his failures for enabling the Nazis to gain a firm control over Germany, its military, and embroil Europe in a devastating war costing tens of millions of lives. Thankfully, Adolf Hitler made a foolish decision to attack Russia, which added and contributed to his own demise. When people make foolish decisions, it can lead to devastation. However, when God makes a foolish decision, it provides deliverance. God commanded a man to build a great big boat in an arid region with little fear of floods. To the great jeers of his neighbors, Noah and his sons labored for a hundred years to build this great craft to carry themselves and representatives of each of the species high above a great deluge. What was foolish in the eyes of the unrighteous was the very means of salvation for the righteous. The mockers perished in the floods. God commanded his prophet to preach an unpopular message to the people of Jerusalem. Surrender to the enemy and your life will be spared. Jeremiah suffered great risk, great pressure from the people who wanted to resist capture, only to be destroyed by the Babylonians. Jeremiah suffered threats to his life, imprisonment, banishment, and eventually death, standing firm against an obstinate people. His words proved true. Those who surrendered survived to pass on the faith of the Jewish people to future generations. However, those who rejected his message perished at the hands of the murderous Babylonians. The folly of man is his proud refusal to accept God's provision for his greatest need. The folly of God is the message of the cross that humbles sinners and exalts the righteous. Tonight, I would have us consider from 1 Corinthians 1, the folly of the cross provides the means of man's salvation. It makes fools of men, and yet magnifies the glory of our God. 
In our opening verse, Paul declares that those who, to, the, to those who are perishing, the message of the cross is folly. Elsewhere, Paul will explain how this folly, how it counters, the message of the cross counters all the tenets of traditional religious belief. The folly of the cross requires man to exercise simple trust without contributing any great deeds of his own to secure salvation. Salvation is the work of one man. We contribute nothing to it. And so people reject the narrowness of the cross's message. Just as Pastor Rogers expounded on the Word of God this morning. People resist the narrowness of the cross. People ask, is there, is there only one way of salvation? Are not there many ways to find God and entrance into heavenly glory? But we are reminded, in Noah's day, there was only one way to be saved. To the people in Jerusalem in the days of Jeremiah, there was only one way of deliverance. Surrender to the enemy. A foolish act. When the Titanic struck an iceberg, it must have sounded foolish to the people on board to flee that great ship onto lifeboats. But sure enough, there was only one way of escape. Everyone else who remained perished. C.S. Lewis writes that man-made religion is like an effort to scale a great mountain only to fall to one's death, or even if one reaches the top, will perish in unbreathable air. Rather, Christianity is not like climbing a mountain at all. It is rather the sprouting of wings and flying off into glory. You see, becoming a Christian requires one to become a new creature with an entirely different kind of power than the world knows. The message of the cross. While being folly to those who are perishing, to those who believe it is the power of salvation. Who would have guessed a hundred years ago that plutonium and uranium would, would provide enough power to destroy an entire city or provide enough energy to provide for the needs of that same city. These substances, which were nearly worthless just a short time ago, became the key to mankind's energy needs as well as a threat to his very survival. The cross in the Greco-Roman world was a symbol and sign of shame, of disgrace. To the Greco-Roman people, it was a reminder uh, of, of pain, of torture, of disdain and ridicule. Who could have guessed that the cross would become the very means of salvation for the entire world? The power of the cross is released as the folly of God provides a surprising deliverance for man captured in his sin. Yes, the cross divides like a sword. A wise king 
was confronted with a seemingly unsolvable case. Two women with newborn sons were sleeping in close quarters when one of the newborn sons died in the night. His mother switched the babies. In the morning, the mother of the living son was not fooled by the swap and brought their case to the king, each as the women were arguing before King Solomon. Solomon wisely ordered a soldier to bring him a sword to divide the living child in two. In reaction, the true mother, in pity for her son, called for the sword to go away, to give the child to the other mother. Whereas the bereaved mother, in her bitterness, urged the king to go forward with the division. This seemingly foolish command provided a clear division between life and death. God's folly in the cross divides those who are perishing from those who are being saved. The folly of the cross requires people to believe in a just God who will judge the world in righteousness against against conventional wisdom. God, on Judgment Day, will not weigh people in the balance, determining if one's good deeds outweigh his or her bad deeds. The folly of the cross offends proud men. It indicts respectable persons as rebels. It requires repentance, not only of our sins, even our acts of righteousness in which we put false trust. For many, accepting that God would subject his own son to the unspeakable horrors of crucifixion is too much to bear. To them, it is cosmic child abuse. But to those of us who are foolish enough to accept this sentence, indictment upon our crimes, and would believe the folly of the cross. It is the very way of salvation. In verses 19 and following, Paul expands upon the themes of God's folly, showing us how the cross makes fools of men. There's a quote here from Isaiah Isaiah chapter 19. And here in verse 19, we see the themes of pride and prevention. God indeed will crush man's pride. Isaiah says that God will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Here, the prophet also reveals that God will prevent man from achieving salvation on his own terms. God declares that the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Paul builds off of this Old Testament prophecy with taunts of his own against man's pride. He invites all the wise men, the philosophers, the debaters of the age to rise up and argue with him against the wisdom of the cross. Recently, during our Reformation weekend, Professor Scott Oliphant from Westminster Seminary led our combined Sunday school hour 
And during that hour, he shared with us how modern philosophy has almost given up on achieving and finding any measure of meaning or purpose. In this great modern crisis, thinkers of our age have found the very bottom of their own intellectual bankruptcy. Their work is merely an exercise in futility, struggling to justify their very discipline. A few years ago, I read a number of, at that time, the recent New York Times bestsellers written by atheists who were writing to uh, propose a a new vogue view of neo-atheism. And as I read these works, I was struck by what I perceived to be dogmatic ramblings, lacking any clear or helpful argumentation against the existence of God and actually creating more problems for their view. The problems of evil, the problems of personhood, greater problems for them to answer than it is for us to answer from a biblical worldview. The folly of the cross makes fools of men who in their pride refuse to submit to its wisdom. It also prevents people from finding salvation who are determined to discover it by their own wisdom. Paul alludes to the fact that the Jews demanded signs, and we see this in the life of Jesus, where Jesus refused many times to perform signs and miracles due to the unbelief of the Jews. We find him in the Gospel of John rebuking the Jews for trusting in their own wisdom. He says in John 5, 39, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The Jews who had the precious scriptures missed the point in their pride. By their laying up of rules and self-righteous commands, they achieved nothing whatsoever other than the just judgment of their God. Jesus would go on to say that unless you become like a little child, you shall never enter the kingdom of God. And then he exalts, saying, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Likewise, the Greeks, in their pursuit of wisdom, became fools. Both Jews and Greeks stumbled over the message of the cross. This very notion of a crucified Savior, one who, under, who endured the curse and misery of man. Both Jews and Greeks clung to their positions of power and their own wisdom, failing to see that Jesus Christ is the very wisdom and power of God. God has a history of preventing man from pursuing his proud ends on his own wisdom and strength. One of the first great enterprises of mankind is recorded in Genesis 11, where we see men intent on making a great name for themselves and preventing themselves from being scattered over the face of the earth by building for themselves a great tower. 
The irony of that passage is the way it portrays God stooping down from his heavenly throne to get a closer look at this puny expression of power and greatness. God, in his wisdom, frustrated those people's efforts, confusing their languages and breaking up their communication so they could, cannot continue to unify in their rebellion against their God. The cross is folly to all those who would build up their own utopia or their own stairway to heaven, just as God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden to prevent them from living perpetually in their sin. So we are forced to wander on earth and only given one hope and one way and one truth that will bring us into the presence of God. Man's pride prevents many from entering the kingdom of God. We see this in our culture. American Southerners reject the gospel because it is not courteous enough. It is too crude. Northerners reject the gospel because it is not sophisticated enough. It is too simple. People on the West Coast reject the gospel because it's too demanding. It restricts their freedom. As Americans, we want a custom-made religion that fits our preferences and taste. However, the gospel is a one-size, all-offending proposition. It critiques every culture, every value system, all personal beliefs. There's something for everybody to be riled up about. It was a week and a half ago that in light of the revelations of child sex abuse scandal at Penn State University, the great shockwaves of grief and anger and disillusionment spread across that great campus. A spirit of shame and clouds of disgrace fell upon Happy Valley as it faced its first game in decades without the beloved Joe Paterno at the helm. In the midst of this great cloud of darkness, though, a light of hope has shone. I was very pleased to learn a week ago of our RUF minister, Alex Wallington, for whom we mentioned earlier. His message to a gathering of students at their Thursday night RUF meeting presented a powerful message of the cross. After acknowledging the emotional chaos amongst the students, and affirming the need to bring to justice abusers and those who had covered up abuse. He made a very bold declaration. The gospel calls us not only to pray for victims, but also for perpetrators of abuse. You see, the cross offers hope not only to those who are victimized by sin, but also those who are guilty of committing great, indecent acts of sin. This bold message provided clarity to a campus in great confusion 
We find many people today that think the gospel is all about being good, being moral, don't hurt anybody. In the midst of this confusion, there is great offense when the gospel is calling decent moral people to humble themselves, to let go of their pride and their self-determination. Already, Pastor Wallington has seen the fruit of his labors as students who have suffered sexual abuse in the past. They have never shared that with anybody or coming forward for counsel and gospel encouragement. Members of the football team are asking questions and seeking counsel and support. Unfortunately, the gospel's message of forgiveness can be a stumbling block to those who don't think that certain people deserve forgiveness. Their pride blinds them to the very fact that none of us deserve God's forgiveness. That is the very nature of God's grace. God is foolish enough to forgive the undeserving. When verses 25 and following, Paul opens once again with a very bold yet humble declaration that God's foolishness is wiser than men, that God's weakness is stronger than man's strength. And so thus, finally, we see that God magnifies himself through the folly of the cross. We see here God's folly magnified both through wisdom and weakness. And we see this wisdom in the, in on display in the election of God's people, contrary to the world's thinking. God does not choose the best, but oftentimes the worst, or at least the very ordinary people. Paul declares that the people of Corinth that not many of them were wise or powerful. Not many of them came from noble birth. They had not many badges of honor which to show off on their sleeve. Rather, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame. The wise, those who felt deserving, are left out. Whereas those who acknowledge the fact that they are undeserving are welcomed into this kingdom. Jesus told a parable of a man who held a great feast. And after being rejected by many nobles who offered all kinds of ridiculous excuses, this man in his anger and zeal sent his servants out to compel the ordinary people, even the poor, the blind, and lame, to come in enjoy this great feast. God chooses the weak to shame the strong. We, the weak, even the lowly and despised in the eyes of the world. Why would God choose those of us who are lacking in wisdom, who are mere weakling nobodies? It is for God's zeal to magnify the glory of his own name and to give no grounds for boasting to man. The only grounds we have for boasting is in the person of Jesus Christ, who embodied weakness, 
who was lowly and despised in the eyes of the world. The folly of the cross means that Christ has become our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. Paul alludes to Jeremiah chapter 9 at the end of our text, which I read verses 23 and 24 in full. The prophet writes, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he knows and understands me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. I believe I mentioned two weeks ago that back in September while I was on sabbatical, I went on a men's retreat up at Lake Champion, New York State. And on the Saturday afternoon of that wonderful retreat weekend, there was a, a pickup game of football. And uh, to my great dismay, I was the very last one picked as two teams were divvied up amongst the available players. And it made me think of this, this passage, these remaining verses of Paul's letter. You see, friends, we, you and I, are like children on the playground who never get picked on the team. You and I are overlooked. We are not athletic enough or cool enough or no, we don't we belong in the world's games. But friends, Jesus, our elder brother, has come to our playing field and recognized for the champion that he is, the world determines that he is also to be a team captain. But then, to great surprise, rather than pick members of the world for his team, Jesus chose us. To the great amazement of the world, Jesus picked those who lacked wisdom and sophistication. Those whose abilities were not fitting the expectations that are prized by the world. Rather, he chose the weaklings, the fools, and those who are despised. Well, being greatly offended by not being chosen by Jesus, the world rallies in its pride like the Philistines to take the game to us. But to their great dismay, our team is unstoppable. Like Gideon with his 300 men, God can win, whether with many or with few. Jesus wins, regardless of who is on his team. Because he is our great champion. Friends, no doubt, our church is a very gifted church in many ways. Like the people of Corinth, also a very gifted church. And yet we must recognize that we are despised. And ridiculed as fools by many in this world. Friend, if that is a stumbling block for you. Let me ask you, whose side would you prefer to be on? Who is the true fool? The one who follows the world to the clapping roarus of a supportive crowd? Or the one who follows Jesus? God's own fool, willing to suffer derision 
by mockers who will perish in the end. The famous words of Jim Elliot, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. The gospel is for those who have nothing to boast about. The folly of the cross robs mankind of all conceit. It is a barrier to those who insist upon their own merits to make themselves presentable before the king of glory. Rather, friend, are you willing to accept this truth? That God chose you not because you were worthy or moral or respectable or valuable or attractive or having anything redeemable, but rather because of your inherent unworthiness and helplessness. Friends, we are despised and considered inferior by the world, are placed on display like a crown trophy to show the world the greatness of God's grace to a people who are not deserving of his remarkable salvation. We conclude with Paul's words later on in chapter 3 where he says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. Friends, let us become fools as well and glory in the folly of the cross. Let us pray. Gracious God, we do marvel, we do praise you for your great wisdom, even in that which appears foolish and nonsense in the eyes of the world. We thank you that you have triumphed. And we thank you that you have chosen us, the weak and despised, to be made strong, to be made whole, to be unified with our champion, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen.